welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wahead, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. This week, Mimi Nguyen, co-founder of Mana Labs, which if you don't know, is the research and development practice we have at Mana Search, where she is studying team collaboration in virtual work, is going to be interviewing Tom Eisenman from Harvard Business School. Tom is the Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School and the faculty co-chair of the Arthur Rock Center for Entrepreneurship. Since joining Harvard Business School faculty in 1997, he has launched 11 MBA courses on a range of topics related to entrepreneurship. He has written over 100 Harvard Business School case studies and his writing appears regularly in the Wall Street Journal, The New Statesman and The New York Times. His new book, The Failsafe Startup, published by Penguin, is a comprehensive guide to beating the odds and making a startup a success. We felt Mimi would be best placed to deep dive into this week's subject, as she is also outside of her MANA role, a senior associate lecturer of innovation management at Central St. Martins and a doctorate fellow at Imperial College London in the Department of Design Engineering. Welcome on to Searching for MANA, Tom. Hello, thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you on. Tom, I would like to open up the study that you carried out on betting the company using the cases of Rupert Murdoch's Fox News and UK Broadcasting. Can you reflect on this notion, considering the uncertainty that we are all facing? Yeah, now I, um, um, early in my career, I became fascinated with the bet the company moves that um, particularly, I, I had worked as a management consultant before I got my doctorate. Um, in the mid 1990s, and um, uh, the the um, owners uh, and and uh, CEOs of those media companies, uh, Rupert Murdoch stands out as an example. Uh, John Malone was a counterpart; he ran the biggest cable company in the in, in the United States. Um, they were regularly taking gigantic bets. I mean, uh, Murdoch's bet on um, on satellite broadcasting in the UK would be an example, but he did it over and over again. He launched a broadcasting network in the US. He bought the Fox studio. Um, and uh, uh, when I got into the doctoral program and studied um, strategic decision making, what I found is that a lot of scholars thought that Rupert Murdoch is simply impossible that um, nobody could manage a, 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 an enterprise as complicated as News Corporation and do it uh, be personally the architect of strategy. And, and uh, but there he was, he was doing it. And so that set me off on research on, um, on exactly what type of, of executive was likely to, to make these bet the company moves. And, um, and and I spent a lot of time studying this in the context of U.S. cable TV operators. Um, and what I found was that owner managers, uh, the U.S. cable TV systems were, were owned by, um, um, some of them were still run by the original entrepreneur. Many of them had a professional CEO. And, and when I uh, looked at which of the companies um, were expanding aggressively and taking really um, risky moves, um, it was much more likely to be the, the owner managers, the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And that started me on a path toward studying entrepreneurship. I became fascinated with, uh, with these entrepreneurs who were um, in the face of turbulence, in the face of uncertainty, um, just constantly betting the company. Um, and so, so this, when, when you mentioned that, when, when he successfully keep going with his, his, his mentors, these are the, some of the successful examples that, that we're all aware of. And I was actually myself always thinking, why are we all obsessed with learning from only successful unicorn companies? So for example, like we all listen to Tim Ferriss guests and, you know, this unicorn, that unicorn, uh, Dropbox uh, cases and stuff. But yeah, what if we learn from failures? What about, what about that? Um, so your new book, The Failsafe Startup, touches upon this thinking. Um, why did you write this book? Well, um, 
so I, I studied these um, entrepreneurs taking big risky bets. And, you know, it's a long list of them. If we look today, Elon Musk would fit that profile, right? Um, Tesla was has just continued to be a, a, an incredible series of, of big risky bets. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with, with Musk's SpaceX. So I was fascinated with these CEOs. But um, when I actually started to um, teach students how to launch their own startups, um, I discovered that uh, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with the lean startup, the, the, mm -hmm. the notion that um, you have a hypothesis about how the how the new venture will work, and you test it, and you test it quickly and rigorously, but without wasting time and without wasting resources. And um, and I, I moved those ideas into the curriculum at Harvard Business School and taught my students and helped help many of them launch businesses. Um, and a couple, uh, this is around um, uh, 2012 or so, um, they followed the Lean Startup textbook perfectly. Minimum viable product tests, really well done, validated demand, and yet they still failed. Um, mm -hmm. and, and in one case, I was actually an investor. I had a lot of confidence in the team. And um, I could point to a lot of reasons why they failed. Um, but I couldn't pinpoint the real cause. And, and that was um, that was upsetting, alarming. You know, here I was, I'm supposed to be an expert on entrepreneurship. <laughs> Two thirds of startups fail, and I couldn't really explain the most important phenomenon um, in my field. So that set me out on a path uh, for the last uh, more than five years, um, studying lots of startups, talking to the investors, talking to the entrepreneurs, reading everything I could get my hands on. Um, doing survey work and so forth, and 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 that's all culminated in, in in this book that you mentioned. Yeah, we can learn a lot from that. So um, I I know actually a company who, as you say, everything was perfect. So uh, we have a massive backing from a big VC, Rocket Internet Ventures, uh, big clients on board. Uh, in UK, it was Monzo, Caro, all these these big names, and yet the startup failed. And I myself couldn't understand it. Um, so what are the potential failure patterns? Well, we 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 need to unpack failure. So, I mean, at the at the um, simplest level, a startup fails because they run out of money and they can't raise more. Um, that's not very helpful. It's like saying the patient died because of loss of blood. Okay, why? Um, gunshot wound. Um, why? Um, innocent bystander in a in a gang shooting. Um, uh, Self inflicted. You, you know, so you have to dig deeper and deeper. And when you do that, you can then um, find there's a set of failures um, that are really interesting. And these are the failures where there was a lot of initial promise. These are smart people came on board, um, both to join the team and to put money in as investors. And, and, and so there was initial promise, and yet the failure in retrospect seems avoidable. We can see mistakes. So anytime we look at failure, we have to figure out if what's the balance of mistakes made made by the entrepreneur versus misfortunes. Um, so with COVID, with a pandemic, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe worldwide millions of businesses will shut down. No fault of the entrepreneur. It's just um, unlucky timing, really. And and the same thing happened in the Great Recession, particularly in the in the financial sector that that's so interesting to your listeners. Um, in the Great Recession, same thing happened. So we can set those aside. I mean, it's crystal clear why why those <laughs> companies are failures. There's also a set of businesses that really, if we're honest, um, and if the entrepreneur is is more self-aware, don't show initial promise. Uh, think of them as hapless and hopeless. Um, this is a person who shouldn't be an entrepreneur. They have a terrible idea. Um, they're not fit to lead. The 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 it's it's heartbreaking, of course, when a business like that fails, um, but they rarely last very long. Number one, and they rarely accumulate much in the way of, of of a team or or capital because it's clear to the world that this is a bad idea and this is not a good entrepreneur. So we can set those aside too. So the interesting ones show promise, and yet some aspect of of the failure was avoidable, and and that's where I look for patterns. And 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 then. Um, we, we'd want to divide um, those startups into two groups, early stage failures mm -hmm. in the first few years and later stage. The later stage are the ones we hear about and read about. And when when something crashes to earth, it leaves a gigantic steaming crater. Um, 
one of these late stage failures, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars lost, hundreds, maybe even thousands of employees. Mm-hmm. And those turn out to be a very different set of reasons why um, why you see failure. So we can talk about those or we can talk about the early stage. I think your your listeners may be interested in both. Um, yes, yes. So, I'll so, both. Let's start with the early stage then. <laughs> early stage. Um, so so um, I, I found three patterns. There's a pattern where the entrepreneurs, and this is this is this company that I that sort of set me on the path. Um, it was actually an apparel company. Uh, there were two former students of mine, Quincy Apparel. The idea was better fitting, um, affordable, and stylish apparel for young professional women. They themselves had this problem. Entrepreneurs often solve solve a problem they have, and. Um, uh, it was a good idea, and they ran the MVP test. They ran trunk shows. Um, anybody who's been around the world of fashion will know what a trunk show is. Uh, so you bring in samples, people try them on, mm-hmm. they get excited, and they got lots of orders. So there was clear clear demand for the concept. Uh, they didn't have experience in design or manufacturing apparel, um, and that turns it turns out to be very hard to um, to especially if your promise is better fit to actually get a garment that fits well, and so. Um, this is an example of good idea, mm-hmm. bad resources. And it wasn't just the founders. The founders lacked experience. They also couldn't agree on which one would be the CEO. But because of their lack of industry experience, they hired team members who did have specialized expertise. But fashion turns out to be one of those things where you do just one function. You're the pattern cutter. Um, you, you are the fabric sourcer. And those people would do that job but no other jobs. In most early stage startups, people pitch in and they do a little bit of everything. But here, um, they hired people that were used to doing just the one thing they knew how to do. And and so they had the wrong team, the wrong founders. And then because they didn't have a great track record, they had trouble raising money. So they raised money from investors, typical tech investors. They positioned it as a direct-to-consumer concept. And the investors really didn't know enough about fashion. And they also weren't big enough to when the company got in trouble to provide follow-on funding. So here's a little more money to keep you going. And then finally, the factories that actually manufactured the garments didn't pay any attention to this team, right? They were small, they had no industry reputation, they had unusual sizing requirements for the garments. So all the way around um, the resources that, that, that an entrepreneur needs to be successful, every, every place you looked, they had problems. So good idea, bad resources. A second pattern is just the opposite. And here was the example in the book is an online dating site. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, strong entrepreneur who attracted a terrific team. They could iterate. They could do all the, the, the kinds of things you expect an engineering team to do. Um, supportive investors who put in enough money at the beginning. And and um, and actually partners who were supportive. Um, this was an early example of of, a, of an application on Facebook. This is back in 2011 or so. And, and so great resources, but he just never found the right idea. And and the problem, and this is a typical problem, and one I hope your listeners watch out for. I call it a false start, just like in in car racing or horse racing or track and field, um, the the athlete. Um, jumps the gun, gets going too soon. And in this case, the entrepreneur um, who was an engineer built the site out completely before testing, before talking to customers, before really understanding the appeal of the kind. He had a special way of doing online dating, but he really didn't test it before he built it. And so he, he um, the good news is he could iterate fast based on customer feedback. The bad news is the first thing he built was off target. It was a false start. And he wasted a third of the money he raised on, mm-hmm. on, on a product that if he had done proper research in the beginning, if he'd followed, Lean Startup is all about minimum viable product, but that's actually the tail end of a process. I mean, Lean Startup is also about what a good designer would do, um, spend so much time studying customer needs and, and empathizing with the customer and so forth before you actually start the engineering work. And he skipped that step, um, built the wrong product, wasted time, wasted money. And and um, an entrepreneur only has so much time and so much money before the business fails. So those are the two. Then there's a third pattern, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall victim to. It's the false positive. S- same as in medicine, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, false negative, false positive. And the false positive for a lot of entrepreneurs is an enthusiastic early adopter um, who embraces the product and, and and you get a bunch of them and you think, wow, I've got something. 
But it's often the case that the needs of early adopters are different from the needs of mainstream customers. Mm-hmm. And when that's the case, if you build a product and have a marketing message that's suited only to the early adopters, um, when you try to bridge to keep growing and grow and, and, and um, connect with the mainstream, the product can fail. So that's that's the third early stage pattern. Yeah, I think I could see this, um, the third pattern. So I think many companies would pivot at that stage. So after they reach the early adopters, they would slightly pivot to reach kind of a broader audience. Um, exactly. And when they're scaling, it tends to they they tend to hire a lot of MBA executive actually in that stage. So you have the young entrepreneur, and then the moment they scale, they hire people from the industry with ten years experience back. To, yeah, and um, you can get a culture clash. That's that's a, a later stage problem and a, and a very real one. Um, oh, that, that, so, that's a so, that's a company that's um, successful enough to make it to late stage. Um, the false positive can um, can slow a company down, but not kill it. Sometimes it can kill the company. So, yeah, so we'll go to that later because I'm very interested in that. But before that, uh, I wanted to go back to the first pattern because you mentioned uh, resources. And that's mm-hmm. something that uh, we are passionate about. Uh, so searching for MANA, we also have clients uh, to, to build ventures basically through hiring uh, mm-hmm. and, and developing careers uh, and, and acquiring talent. So how do you, can you reflect on maybe that the hiring kind of process? Uh, for for innovative startups, what are yeah, the um, pain points here? Um, early stage and late stage um, is a crucial issue, a- and I would say with the early stage startups, a a problem is hitting the right balance between skill, specialized skill, cutting the fabric, sourcing, and attitude. Um, and, and, and this is the problem that the Quincy Apparel founders had. They, they hired for skill. They didn't spend enough time recruiting for attitude. And, and in an early stage startup where it's complete chaos, I mean, every day there's a crisis. Every day something's changed. Every day the entire team will shift to some new priority. You need people who understand those rhythms um, and can handle the the uncertainty, the chaos, the shifting priorities and so forth. And somebody who's spent a long time in a big company um, may not adapt well. The the later stage issue with hiring, it's actually one of the later stage um, failure patterns is called help wanted. And and the help comes in two forms of resources. We can talk about the capital later. Sometimes the capital just disappears. I mean, the capital markets go through cycles and in an, either the entire economy, there's, there may be no money for startups or in a specific sector like clean tech went through this in the late 2000s. It's just people stopped investing in clean tech. And when that happens, if you don't have enough money in the bank, um, you have a lot of trouble. But the other aspect of, of help wanted for late stage startup is the key executive. Um, there, there's often one function in, in a startup that's just essential. And as the startup grows, if you don't have the right person in that role, it can kill the startup. So, so the example, of the late stage example I have is um, Dot and Bow. It was in the business of, of online home furnishings. So if you look around your studio, the couch, the pillows, you know, the lamps, everything you can see. And, and um, that stuff is produced all over the world. It had to be shipped into the United States, complicated logistics. And then once it arrives in the warehouse, packed and shipped, and um, if somebody's ordered a couch online, they want to take a day off from, not during the pandemic, but before the pandemic, mm-hmm. you'd take a day off from work to meet the shipper. Um, and so you don't want it to arrive three days early because no one will be there to receive it. You surely don't want it to arrive three weeks late. You know, it has to be precise. So, so the logistics and the operations are very unforgiving, you know, plus all the uncertainty about ordering um, um items in Asia and, and, and international transportation and so forth. <clears throat> and so the job of vice president of operations for a company like this is just absolutely crucial. This, uh, this uh, startup, Dot & Bow, had fantastic g- demand generation and, and uh, very loyal customers. Um, they curated rooms and people would buy the entire room, just everything they could see. And of course, that's coming from different suppliers and 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 arriving at different times so complicated logistics so um the first vice president of operations they hired was a generalist the 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 ceo who lacked the founder who lacked operations experience knew he needed it but he also wanted somebody that could run all the operations marketing finance etc 
And that person just had never had any experience with shipping big, complicated items like in an e-commerce context. Um, the second person came from Netflix, used to ship and back in the old days when Netflix, the the, C, the DVDs, I assume it mm-hmm. was available in the UK, the same as the US, you know, the, the, the DVDs used to come in little red envelopes and they would ship literally millions of those. So he had opera- operations and logistics experience, but with a very different kind of product than a couch. And so it took um, three hires before they finally found somebody that could manage the logistics. And by then, you know, the shipments were late. They were expediting shipping, incurring extra cost, um, spending tons of money on customer service because people would call in and say, well, like, or email, where is my couch? You know, it was supposed to be here yesterday. And and, um, and they burned through a lot of cash. And, and um, had they got that hiring move right from the start, um, help wanted, um, the company may have survived. So, yes, absolutely yeah. crucial. This is very important right now because we all are talking about hiring recruitment using AI. And that's basically machine matching CVs based on keywords. So exactly as you say, someone can have logistics on his CV, on her CV, but it's still not the same person with the right attitude and the right knowledge and expertise to, to deliver the highest uh, service actually uh, and work. How can we hire people with right attitude? I think this is this is the main uh, problem right now. We're looking at keywords at um, at LinkedIn, just spotting matching things, but yet there are people that are still not incompatible, uh, not compatible with the company. How do we hire the, for for attitude? No, I think it has to be through the interview process and, and um, the. Um, Many entrepreneurs and, and some venture capital investors have written um, um, really thoughtful um, pieces, interview guides, essentially for how you how you so so um, I, I would direct your listeners to just Google it. You know, how, how do you hire for attitude, and get that list of questions. and And in many cases, it will um, it'll be probing an individual about some specific um, episode where they were they were the member of the team. Um, and people will often take credit for contributions. And if you really push them and push them, you find out they were in the background and somebody else really was driving the initiative. Mm-hmm. You'll find out about conflict. You'll have an opportunity to ask um, questions about how they managed the conflict on the team. Um, and, uh, and, and so it really comes down to um, a thoughtful interview process. And in a lot of early stage startups, um, the, the um, recruiting process can be very haphazard. I mean, best practice is um, the team. So the candidate will meet many team members, um, but every every team member in the interviewing process needs a role. You know, you will probe the. You know, we're hiring an engineer. You probe the technical skills. You probe the attitude skills, the team skills, mm-hmm. and so forth. So, um, so, so again, um, hiring for skill and attitude means a, a really thoughtful recruiting process in inside the firm, and also for the firm when they work with a search firm. Um, for for making sure that that firm goes beyond just the transactional aspects, you know, a lot of a, a lot of search firms are just, you know, there's a candidate. Um, I think there's a fit. Good luck, you know, finding somebody that understands your values and understands this balance issue. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, you can have this recruitment firms who are just transactioning thing, but you can if you have like a real search firm that uh, collaborate and partner with with the client on a long. Uh, longer period, um, just a bit like consulting, but really understand the culture of the company, that would actually uh, be way mm, yeah. more beneficial. Uh, let's move to the, the late stage uh, failure patterns, because uh, that's something I always uh, I wanted to go back. Yeah, um, it's um, all the failures are heartbreaking, but these are really um, pretty amazing to, to learn about. Um, there are three patterns. Uh, help, help wanted, I mentioned already. This is um, the company's doing well, but they either um, run out of money and they just hit a, a, a spot in the capital markets where the, where no one is investing. And even a good company can die because there's they need capital and 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 the investors are not willing. And then the and the other um, help wanted aspect is the, missing this critical executive. Um, so that's one. Um, a big one is a, a pattern I call speed trap. And um, here, oh, and this happens so many times, um, the company gets off to a great start. They find an unmet need. Early adopters pour in. Early adopters refer the, the product to their friends, to their coworkers. 
Um, the growth continues. Investors come in. They pay a high price for the equity. Everybody's enthusiastic about the opportunity, the potential. There's often a charismatic entrepreneur um, who can um, sell the vision. And, and um, of course, when the investors come in, they want you to um, to use an American baseball analogy: swing for the fences, right? You know, try mm -hmm. to hit, hit the ball out of the park. And because that's how VCs make money, you know, from a big, big um, return. And of course, the entrepreneur wants that, too. So everybody's goals are aligned. Um, but then things start to happen. So the, the second wave of customers may not be as excited as the first wave. Right. So you have to spend more on advertising to attract them. You may have to cut the price. Um, competitors arrive, clones. Um, it's quite common for a um, for a successful startup to quickly be copied in other in other markets um, or in their or in their home market, and uh, of course the way the the copycats the clones um, get business is they cut their price they spend heavily on marketing, so now customers and 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 customers are less loyal so they stay around less long um, they're 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 more likely to churn away to disappear, um, they're less likely to refer the company to friends so now we. To get new customers, we have to. We can't rely on free advertising through word of mouth. We have to pay, um, and and so there's this squeeze between um, how much a customer is worth, the value, because prices are coming down, because they're staying less long, they're buying less, and the cost of acquiring customers, and and so the economics of the business start to look pretty bad pretty quickly. In the meantime, in parallel, if it's the kind of business, and this would be true in a lot of financial services. Um, where you need humans to do things, you know, uh, think think of think of Robin Hood um, not being able to answer um, the, yeah. the customer service queries they're getting. Um, you have when you have that kind of growth, you need to hire all these people, and it's hard to find them, and it's hard to train them quickly enough to make them productive. So, uh, either you do without and you don't answer the emails or the phone calls, or, um, or you don't. Like yeah, <laughs> yeah. So just like Robin Hood went exactly through this. So, uh, and then the, and then the the other factor that's going on is is a cultural problem inside the company. So, you get um, all of these specialists in every function, in operations, in finance, in marketing. Um, they're people now that are doing specialized roles. They're newcomers. And the original, the generalists, the jacks of all trades, the Swiss army knives that were there in the beginning, look at these new people and, and they don't get along. For one thing, um, if the business is still successful, the new people um, are looking at the, the old guard and thinking like, wow, they have stock options that are worth $5 million. I just arrived. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. And the, and the old guard doesn't know. They don't appreciate my contributions as a specialist. So you get old guard, new guard conflict. You get... Um, subcultures within the function. So the people in the warehouse will have one culture. The marketing people will blame the engineers for being slow to produce the product. So lots of cultural conflict, um, and, and bad economics, and, and um, eventually, but you're, grow you're still growing, you're pumping money into marketing, but it's not um, a good investment. Eventually the investors will say, mm, you know, um, I I'm not sure I wanna put more money in. Why don't you go try to raise money from somebody new the new investors will look at the economics and go, um, I just don't know. And the thing can unravel incredibly quickly. So, you know, you see this, we've seen it over and over again. If you know these U.S. businesses, Groupon um, mm -hmm. um, went through this um, blue apron, which is meal delivery in the U.S. You've got European counterparts um, uh, and, and um People selling cars. You just sort of pick any kind of business you can imagine, and you'll see this pattern. Sometimes they survive. They they um, slow the marketing down. They focus only on the loyal customers. But often the business just um, dies completely. So I that's in one business that I left at Sirius C because I was the old guard, and then as you say, there was a new guard coming. They were growing as a crazy level because of the the investment round, and. I think the old guard just couldn't understand. Like, we didn't recognize each other anymore, and and that was kind of a slip. But they yeah, it can be very painful. You, you know, often um, the 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 original team, you know, the first ten people in the company, um, the company will outgrow the roles for those individuals, and it, and and it's culturally very disruptive. If you take somebody who was there from the beginning, um, and you tell them we, you know, we don't really have a job for you anymore, or now you're going to work for this new vice president we hired from someplace. 
So yeah, the, the, the culture can be very difficult to manage in a fast growing firm. So that's the speed trap. The, the last um, late stage pattern um, I, I think is craziest. Um, it's called cascading miracles. So, so the concept is sometimes you have an entrepreneur and Murdoch and Elon Musk fit this profile. Um, the um, British satellite broadcasting, mm -hmm. um, I think it's called Sky these days, um, yeah. um, is, um, is a fantastic example of this. Um, an entrepreneur comes up with a vision that is audacious. It's so bold. It's so ambitious. It's going to take years to develop the product because of engineering challenges, just because of the sheer capital that's required. You need, um, it's, it, you, you're, you're looking at a fundamental change in customer behavior, um, like electric cars, like um, you know, relying on a for-profit company to shoot satellites into space, um, like getting um, British consumers to, instead of watching ITV and BBC, to sort of <laughs> put a satellite on their roof. Um, and so fundamental consumer changes, um, big engineering challenges, often government approvals necessary in these businesses, um, and, and and unclear legality, um, which is Sky went through this. You know, what could we put on the roof? You know, could we watch TV that way? Um, and um, tremendous execution challenges and vast amounts of capital. And if you think of all of those things, each one is a probability. What's the probability that that requirement is going to be successful. And if you just sort of put them all in an equation, sort of A times B times C, if anything goes to zero, the whole equation goes to zero. So you need a cascade of miracles. You need everything to go right. And, and if each of them is a 50, if there are five things that have to go right and each is a 50-50 probability and you just work out that chain, it's 3% odds that everything, you know, that you'll get heads if you flip a coin. Um, five times. And so what you what you often see in businesses like this, it's clear to everybody at the start um, how um, amazing it'll be if this works, as it'll be world changing. Um, Federal Express in the US um, was this kind of business. Sometimes they work. SpaceX is working. Um, Tesla is working. Sky Broadcasting um, worked. Um, but very often they fail. And when they fail, it's spectacular because you have this You need a charismatic CEO who can sell the vision and keep the money coming. But um, there's a term that's that was used to describe Steve Jobs um, called the reality distortion field. It's used to describe his ability to mesmerize a team, investors, strategic partners. And it, it actually comes from an old episode of the U.S. science fiction show Star Trek. Um, and. Um, and the notion is that we will bend reality to our will as the entrepreneur. But sometimes that reality distortion field folds back on itself. And, and the entrepreneur, the charismatic entrepreneur, can't see the real reality because they're sort of caught in their own field. And, and that often happens. And, and so um, the, the key to avoiding this kind of failure um, is basically a board of directors. Because it's, it's, it's sometimes the case that the charismatic CEO is also a narcissist. Um, and, and, and if you, I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with that personality type, um, very engaging, um, um, often able to read people, um, but ultimately uh, insecure and sensitive to criticism and willing to shift blame and willing to use people in a manipulative way, discard them, demanding loyalty, all these attributes that make them hard to work with, but initially very appealing. And um and these narcissists can be, um, at their worst, they can demand such loyalty that inside the company, all you have are yes men, yes men and yes women, um, who basically reflect back to the boss the vision and, and won't tell the CEO that the vision is flawed or there's trouble or we need to make changes. And so, you know, when you um, need cascading miracles and you have the charismatic narcissist the last line of defense is actually the board of directors. They're, they're the only ones that can um, save the company. That leads me to Adam Neumann from what you were just describing here. So what went wrong here? In, in which one? Adam Neumann and WeWork. You had the charismatic leader, you had um, money behind, uh, you had the vision, you have everything. Oh, and... yeah. No, I, I, think, um, I, I think it's a perfect example of cascading miracles. Um, and the and and the charismatic CEO, yeah, it's um, I I wish I knew to really um, to really give you the right answer to that. 
I would need to understand the board dynamics. And we saw from a distance, we, 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 we read in the newspaper um, that there were spectacular fights on the board of directors about whether to keep him, whether to remove him, what role he could play, and so forth. So we know there was tension, and we know the board was working on this, but whether the board saw it early, um, whether the board made efforts to, to um, control the behavior, um, I, I don't know, because you, need, you really need to be inside the company to say, I mean, in a situation like this, what you what you want is often an executive coach. I mean, there, there, there are folks out there who will work with a CEO like this. You, you need the CEO to want to be coached. And it's often the case that a narcissist um, is convinced that they're right. That they, they believe in their superiority, the superiority of their ability, the superiority of their ideas. And so the notion that somebody might come in and coach them how to do a better job. So, it, so it's actually... Um, there's some there's some good writing on this. There's a classic article in Harvard Business Review by Michael McCoby, who's a psychoanalyst on how to manage a narcissist in a productive way. And um, some of it involves flattery, right? If you basically, and they want to be successful. So if you can convince them that their success is somehow linked to getting coaching, um, that can, that can, and then just some board best practices. I mean, a good board will do, um, a, a, an annual review of the CEO and they'll work on a development plan and so forth in, in startups. Um, I mean, the good news is most venture capitalists who are in this position are pretty good board members. So, so you'll see some of those best practices, but yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I had the answer. I'm going to, I'm going to try to get inside, um, the WeWork story to, to, to be able to give you a better answer to that question. Yeah, I think in 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 uh, in few more years we can reflect on that with broader uh, context. Um, I wanted to lead back to uh, you mentioned board members, and then uh, I thought about MBA students, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I bet a lot of your um, your previous students are now sitting on boards. Um, but there was this recent controversy, one of the recent articles on the Financial Times um, by McKinsey alum Tom Peters, um, suggests that the root of McKinsey's issues that relates to this opioid controversy is reliance on quant-based MBAs with no regard for people and culture stuff. What would you say about that? Is that still true? Uh, I don't think it's been true for a long time. Um, I think, you know, when we came, we've had a whole series of, of ethical problems that can be traced back to MBAs. And um, I mean, Enron is a classic example. Jeff Skilling, who was the CEO of Enron, was a Harvard Business School graduate and was a McKinsey partner mm -hmm. for many years. And, um, you know, and then he went to jail um, for, for, uh, for a whole series of, of ethical lapses and, 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 and legal problems. So I, I think if we go back that far, there is something to it. But I would say the leadership of most top MBA programs is acutely aware. There's a lot of societal pressure on business in general, and and, and, and there should be um, um, the role of business in society. So Harvard Business School, and I don't think we're unusual. I think you'd see this at any top business school. We have a required um, ethics course. It's not called ethics. It's called leadership and corporate accountability, but um, every MBA takes it. And, and, and even further, I would say we are... Um, in a process of, because we've seen such pressure on business and society of rethinking how we, how we into every course we weave um, these ethical considerations. I've been thinking about it in the entrepreneurship context. Um, it's a very hard problem in entrepreneurship and it relates to this failure story. So every entrepreneur is constantly selling. Um, you, you're, you're trying to persuade an employee to join. You're trying to persuade a, a big customer to sign up in a B2B context um, to get an investor to give you more money. And there's this line between um, enthusiastic um, um, exuberance and um, telling you how great it's going to be and outright lying or failing to tell people things you, you know, if you, you'd know if you, if they just asked you and you told them the truth that they would want to know it. So uh, do we have a, an ethical obligation to to talk about that? And so we're spending in our entrepreneurship courses a lot of time um, getting students to to think about their responsibility. I mean, just yesterday we we uh, did a case in my I, I'm teaching a course on entrepreneurial failure right now, and we had a a founder in one of his employees committed suicide, um, and um, 
and, and, and so we had a, a long conversation about um, how does an entrepreneur stay close enough to the employees to actually, you know, you, you see them every day. They're there for nine hours and, and you think you understand what's going on. But do you really understand? And in this case, you know, an early stage startup, um, there are a lot of young people. They haven't had experience with with mental health issues. Um, you often don't have benefits in place that um, make it easy for somebody to seek professional help. Um, because mm-hmm. the company's poor and just getting started and saving cash. And um, and you may not even have a well-organized human resources department that could that can be very thoughtful about this. So we had a conversation about the entrepreneur's ethical responsibility to to um, really do the right things there and pay attention to all this. So I, I would say we've got um, m- way more to do as business schools um, to, to train MBAs um, uh, to behave responsibly. But I think we're doing a pretty good job, and I think we're aware of of the need. I think it's actually more difficult nowadays for this remote working. I think it's very difficult to judge the person sitting on the other side of the screen, and I think it's so difficult to to run a business now remotely. Yeah, and and um, and we're having some some business success with remote work. I th- I know your research focuses on that. I think we're going to even after the pandemic is done. I think it's going to become much bigger part of our lives. So, and we have to solve um, this problem and many other problems. Maintaining a culture that we were talking about before, you know, when when people are scattered all over the world. Yeah, how to maintain a culture remotely? Uh, how to stay productive, creative, engaged, mm-hmm. motivated? I think. Uh, that's that's all of this this booming issues. Um, and then so so with all your experiences with with HBS, uh, you are um, giving us uh, a small brief stories previously. So you've been teaching over two decades um, at at Harvard Business School. Has anything changed during this period? Uh, you know, if um, a Martian came down and looked at our students and listened to our students and and they didn't pay attention to changes in the eyeglasses and and how people are dressed. I think it would be more similar than different. But what I would say, so a big difference is in in the entrepreneurship class I'm teaching right now, um, 50 per, exactly 50% of my students are female. Um, Harvard Business School overall is 43% female. Um, when I was an MBA um, in the early 1980s, it was maybe 25% of the class. So that's a pretty big difference. And, and Gender now, I mean, it's obviously always an issue and it's in the background and so forth, but I think we now take for granted that it's it's moving toward 50-50, particularly in tech and entrepreneurship. I mean, there's still, I mean, the reason I have 50% and it's only 43% of the school is there's a lot of students interested in, in investment management and private equity and so forth. Those, um, th- those sectors are still disproportionately male. Um, tech turns out to be, um, much more evenly balanced. So that's one big change. Um, the other change is, I think, um, so when I started the MBA program, the typical um, profile was two years of experience and then graduate school. Um, now our typical, um, when they start, they're 28 years old on average, and, and five years of experience after college uh, might be quite typical. That changes the quality of the discussion you have. And we teach by the case method. So, you know, people have been on the job for five years instead of two years, they can have a, a much richer conversation. So that's a big change. And then and then I think the um, the um, some of the big societal changes, I think I'm teaching millennials and 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 I do believe um, they are far more committed than my generation was to having an impact in the world. And so I think they're constantly asking as they think about their career plans, um, do I feel good about what I'm going to do and, and, and what, what kind of difference will I make? And that's great. And, and, and that gets reflected in the class discussions too. I think we are much more likely to talk about ethics. Um, we're more likely to talk about the social impact of the ventures we study. Yes, I've noticed that as well, kind of both millennial and the generations that I think everyone really would just want to work for a real cause rather than mm-hmm. just um, uh, just building money. But then it leads to what about the share of students that um, finishing MBA go to launch their own businesses with, let's say, social impact and then causes or go back to consulting, for example? Oh, well, um I mean, consulting has always been, I, I don't know the percentage right now, I, I suspect it's around 20%. 
Um, and it's always been at least 20%, you know, in some years it probably approached 30%. Um, so, and I don't think that's going to change uh, quickly. The fraction launching their own business upon graduation. So you have to be careful here because if you take an entire career in mind, 50% of Harvard Business School students will launch a business at some point in their career, usually within the first 15 years after graduation. And people think of Harvard Business School as sort of a factory for consulting <laughs> and investment banking and private equity. And we are, we do those things. But a lot of people will leave those tracks and go off and launch something. And, and so, uh, so we're, it's a very entrepreneurial group, actually. Um, immediately upon graduation for the last few years, the fraction has been seven or eight percent. And, um, that's high by top business school standards. Um, Stanford would be higher. I think Stanford approaches 12 or 14 percent. Um, um, MIT would be a little higher than us, but, um, but we have some, some populations. I mean, one of the programs I run within the business school is a joint degree where they get a master's in engineering and an MBA in two years. Um, and we've just graduated our first cohort of 30 students, and 38% of them launched their own business upon graduation. And the goal of the program is to teach them to be designers and, and, and entrepreneurs, and it, it's working so far. Um, yeah, we're, we're very excited about that. Can you so, tell and, me more and about I think that course? Pardon me? Can you tell me more about that course? Yeah, so I, I'm from the department which we have a, a master called uh, Innovation Design Engineering, and it's engineering from uh, Imperial College London and design from Royal College of Art, two main big institutions in, in the UK, uh, merging these two skill sets. Um, so what are your reflections on, on, on the course that you're having now at the joint? Yeah, uh, um, um, it's it's um, really exciting. Um, the program, so, um, the, the core faculty come from the engineering school and 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 they have design in addition to engineering backgrounds design backgrounds and then half from the business school half from the engineering school um, they get the two master's degrees in two years it's there are very few programs that will there, there are a couple of others in the us mit has a similar program but much more focused on big company logistics and operations and um Northwestern University has a similar program, very focused on, on um, product design. So um, ours is new. Um, the students take five core courses that basically move. We teach the basics of design thinking and, uh, and, and entrepreneurship um, in learning by doing mode. And then um, we add concepts and skills in each course. Um, and the beauty of the courses is they were designed together with a sequence in mind as opposed to when you come to most universities, the courses um, don't really fit together in a logical way because they were started at different points in time and you can't assume that somebody that took A is also going to take C. Um, ours, they must take these five courses and they were designed with a sequence in mind. And, and it's basically design cycles, you know, sort of uh, design and build a thing and launch a business, do it again, do it again. And each step of the way will teach you more. And then in the background, um, the students, uh, they take um, three hardcore engineering electives, cryptography, um, you know, machine learning, whatever it might be. And they take four MBA electives. They take the entire first year of the MBA program, which is required for us. And so it's less MBA electives. It's less engineering electives. And, and it's and it's this core course. I, I love the students. Um, we, we pick them so they all have worked in tech product development before grad school, um, and um, and they all have technical backgrounds. So it's it's just fantastic to teach them. That's something that we would not think about ten years ago. I think merging all the skills, especially even design, uh, into business and, and engineering. What do you think will be the future? What will be in ten next years? Of, um, of the future of this kind of program, the future of entrepreneurship? Of, of training the future innovators. Oh, um, you know, um, so I have um, two priorities on that front. Um, I, you know, I'm very focused on Harvard and, and how Harvard can do more to, to prepare entrepreneurs. And, um, and I, I think you'd find this at a lot of top UK universities too. The, Attitude with undergraduates is um, we shouldn't teach them professional skills. We should broaden them. Um, but the reality is they're going to go get a job and they need some preparation for that job. So Harvard College students don't have entrepreneurship courses they can take, but they're hungry to learn about entrepreneurship. 
So I want to create programs, um, extracurricular programs outside the, the, the core curriculum. I'd love to get permission to actually teach them entrepreneurship within the, the, the regular curriculum. So that's one group um, that I see as a priority. When we do a great job with, with graduate students, with the, with the master students. Um, and then the second group is all of the inventors in our labs. Um, we have labs at the engineering school. We have labs that Harvard has the research, tremendous research hospitals and, and a lot of, of scientists um, who are working on medical technologies and leading edge genomics and, 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 um, and so forth. Um, and um, it's hard, as I'm sure you know, to take something out of a laboratory and commercialize it. So one of the things I want to do is um, through uh, through the business school find better ways to support those inventors in the Harvard labs, mm -hmm. teach them the basics of entrepreneurship, teach them the basics of the design, and so that when something comes out of their laboratory that can that that can uh, turn into a business, uh, they're better prepared to make it successful. That's great. Um, let's just ask about your mana. What has mm -hmm. been this one uh, one thing that helped you excel over the last? So many years. Um, mana means power, right? Um, yes. so, so my superpower. <laughs> um, wow. Um, I, I think, are you familiar with the um, Isaiah Berlin um, fox and hedgehog analogy? Do you know this one? Yeah. Um, so for your listeners, if they haven't run into it, it comes from the Aesop's fables um, way back. And the, um, um, the um, fox knows many things but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Hedgehog is a creature that will um, just sort of put its nose down and find the roots and the bugs and eat them. And the fox will eat almost anything and roves all over the landscape. And um, intellectually, people tend to be either a fox or a hedgehog. Um, I have colleagues who have one big idea and they just push it, push it, push it, push it in every context and they develop it further and further. <laughs> I've been a fox. Um, I've, I've, um, I love to um, do something new, to, to roam into a new territory and learn it and then master it to some extent. You probably can't master it as if you'd spent 15 years studying the same thing, but to move on. And I love to find the connection between um, between these fields I study. So I think the failure of research is an example of that. I mean, people will tend, the, the hedgehogs will oversimplify failure. You know, it's all about a, a character flaw of the entrepreneur. It's all about a bad idea. And of course it's not, it's about many things. It's complicated, but there are patterns and, and the fox will find the connections and find the patterns. So um, I've been like that my whole career and I love doing it. It's one of the reasons I launched so many courses, right? Because each course is an opportunity to learn something new and con connect more dots. Right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Please do visit us at manasearch.co.uk. At Mana, we find fintech talent by filling the gap between the archaic search firms and the voluminous recruitment firms. We are connected with the best talent within FinTech. We conjure our headhunting skills to search and find the mana of the best teams. Please get in touch to find out how we can connect you with the very best talent in the market. All that's left for me to say is thanks once again for your support. Take care, stay safe, and see you very soon on Searching for Mana with Lloyd Warhead.